0: One year ago in the fall of 2022, our church family embarked on a journey of radical generosity and faithfulness to God called Project One. We said that since there is one God and one name by which we are saved, that means there is one faith, one family, and one focus worthy of giving our one life for First, we believe the role of the church and its pastors is to equip and disciple the saints in the one faith in order that we might know, worship, and serve the one true God together as one family. Since the word of God is the one source that teaches us about the one faith, gives us all we need for life and godliness, and prepares us for every good work, we will gather in large groups and small groups to study the scriptures verse by verse. We believe God the Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Jesus at the moment of their conversion. Since this one spirit brings unity in the church, empowerment for Christian living, supernatural abilities that enable us to serve the kingdom of God, and boldness to be witnesses of Jesus, we will pray and seek to be a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, We believe the gospel brings people of different ethnicities, genders, ages, incomes, and political persuasions together as one family in Christ. So one family means the city church will pursue being a multi-ethnic and multi-generational family gathering in downtown Lubbock. Third, we believe our mission as a church must be to make disciples of Jesus here that's in Lubbock and there among unreached people groups. While we gather around one faith, we will also scatter here and there with one focus, making disciples of Jesus. The thing that really impacted us the most as a family would be the kids' ministry. I think, you know, watching our kids get baptized at the city church, um, and uh, our majority of them getting baptized and going through uh, kid faith classes and just seeing how involved the kids' ministry is here. Uh, it has really been impactful as a parent for me, for sure. The family discipleship as a whole, I feel like our church does a really good job of equipping us to equip our kids to go into the world and and be disciples. As a part of Project One, we challenged you to go all, all in with us as we pray for 100% engagement from our church family. We said if there's one name, then there is one choice. All must give all. All must be all in. We cannot settle for some gave all or even all gave some. We must be a church that is all, all in, all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. So we said our primary goal was that every person and family at the City Church would be 100% engaged, all, all in, with us as we pursue becoming one family that gathers around the one faith, and scatters across Lubbock and the world with one focus. In 1 Chronicles 29 verse three, David is raising funds for the construction of the temple. And David said this, and now because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving my all. You see, as a part of project one, we challenged you to give your all as we engage with the Lord on what he wants to do in us We believed God was going to speak to us about what He wants to do through us. We believed God was going to move us to cheerfully and sacrificially give all to this vision. We just really wanted to be a part of the next chapter of the church and and watch it grow and watch these kids grow. And you just don't, you don't really understand how much it blesses your life until you actually do it. It's just amazing how much He blesses you. You know. You give back to Him what what belongs to Him, and everything else just kind of falls into place. This one faith, one family, and one focus was leading us to pursue our one home. To realize Project One, we were seeking to buy and renovate or build a permanent home for our church family in the downtown Lubbock area. We believe this one home was critical to becoming one family that gathers around the one faith and scatters across Lubbock and the world with one focus. And so our secondary goal was that we would give our all. And we set a financial goal of raising $4 million in regular giving over two years. That's where we started. And just look at what God has done. You guys blew us away with your obedience, faithfulness, and generosity. All the commitments made through Project One and all the expected gifts totaled up to $4.3 million, blowing away our original goal. And so in the first year, Your actual gifts that have been given are trending at about 98% of what was projected through commitments. That's incredible. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. We were able to purchase and renovate Experience Life's old downtown campus, giving us a permanent home in downtown Lubbock. We saw a 40% increase in attendance during the summer over last year's numbers. Our city youth has a permanent place to meet upstairs now, regularly having over 70 students here to worship Jesus. Our City Kids ministry is bursting at the seams, recently having to add two new classrooms to accommodate all the growth. We've launched our fourth round of Reengage, a ministry to married couples in a newly renovated upstairs room. Reengage has seen almost 50 couples complete the course with so many testimonies of healed and restored marriages. We launched our midweek ministries on Wednesday nights, seeing our church family come together to share a meal, meet with their city groups, get involved in our prayer gathering and attend discipleship classes. We saw 49 people go on mission trips this past year to Mission Arlington and Israel, Chiapas, Mexico and Thailand. We've been able to significantly increase our giving towards our mission partners, both local and across the world, including adding three brand new mission partners. And finally, we recently launched Hope City in a third location and are now having over 400 men and women join us for worship each week. We've now baptized close to 600 people in these three locations and are seeing many get involved in our church when they are released. It has been truly amazing to see all that God has done. And now we find ourselves at the halfway point of our two-year journey through Project One. Today, we launch a brand new series called First, where we'll discuss how Scripture challenges believers to generously give their first and best. During this series, we'll be issuing some challenges to all of us that are on this journey together. First, for those of you who are new to the church and to Project One, we'll be challenging you to engage with God as to whether He is leading you to join with us and make your own commitment for the final 12 months of Project One. Next, for those of you that have already made a commitment, we'll be challenging you to finish strong as you follow through on your original commitment. And finally, for some of you, God might lead you to increase your commitment over these final 12 months. But one thing we know for sure, God's got something for all of us on this journey. The impact uh, that we can have on on Lubbock and the surrounding communities and then, you know, beyond. Uh, Seeing the faithfulness of people that are integrally involved in the church, you know, wanting to do more, uh, to challenge themselves, to push themselves, to step out and make a difference for the kingdom of God. That's that's what we're all here for, I mean, at the end of the day. If you're comfortable, reevaluate yourself. Kind of look, look inward. Be comfortable being uncomfortable. is kind of what I would say. Just challenge yourself to to seek what God's calling you to do and trust it and step into it. Now, as we've reached this halfway point and as we've marveled at all that God has been doing both in and through us, there's something we've sensed Him leading us to do. We believe He's encouraging us to increase our original goal of 4 million up to 5 million. Now, some of you might be asking why. Here are the reasons we've prayerfully considered this. First, our increased attendance. As I said, we've seen tremendous numerical growth over the past year. With growth comes growing ministries, bigger ministries require more funds to facilitate all the new ministry. It might even mean more staff to be able to lead those ministries. Secondly, this will allow us to pay down our note on our current facility even faster, which will become vitally important as we enter phase three. What is phase three? I'm glad you asked. Phase one was the original purchase of this property. Phase two was the renovation of the upstairs areas which we just completed. Phase three is the bus barn that sits on the southeast corner of our lot. Phase three involves tearing down the current structure in order to build a brand new worship center. Now, you might be asking, but why do we need to be thinking about phase three right now? The reasons are simple. First, it's about legacy. The people of God are called to disciple and tell the next generation of the works and the wonder of God. We must invest in and organize ministries that last from one generation to the next. That starts by having a building that can facilitate those ministries now and in the future. Next, it's about urgency. We're called to preach the gospel and teach God's word to as many people as possible. We're commissioned to make as many disciples here as possible and at the same time send as many people there to unreached people groups as possible. To do all of this, we need more space. We're going to need a larger worship center to hold all the people that are coming. This will also open up more kids and youth space here in our current facility. Finally, it's about opportunity. The opportunity of a lifetime is only as good as the lifetime of the opportunity. City family, we find ourselves at a unique and critical point in our church, where if all of us are all all in and give our all, we can be used by God to see some incredible things. And we can set our church up for success in the future, for generations to come. So because of what God has done in our church and because of what we believe he is calling us to, the time is now for us to give our all. We have the opportunity of a lifetime to live for a story bigger than ourselves. So here's what we're asking of you. We're asking for you to pray. Ask God what role he's wanting you to play. Engage with him on what he wants to do in you and through you as you give your all for him. Well, I don't know about you, but I got myself pumped up. I hope you're pumped up. (laughs) Yeah, um... Thank you guys. Well, about seven years ago, when my daughter Nixon was three years old, my wife Darby took Nixon and some, uh, along with some other moms and children, to Chick fil A, as they did on a daily basis, right? About the 10,000th time. Well, all the kids were out playing on the playground, and uh, it didn't take long for all the kids to come out of the playground, running out, screaming that something stinks inside the playground. So the staff from Chick-fil-A come and they shut the playground down and it just so happens that a kid had pooped in their pants and then slid down the slide in the playground covering the slide in poop. So all the kids come running out, it stinks. All the parents are trying to figure out, you know, whose kid did this, right? Well, about that time, Darby smells something on Nixon. And she looks down at Nixon and realizes that Nixon has poop all over her, right? And so they try to slip out quietly all the while, you know, wondering whose kid did that, right? right? As you slip out, not wanting to draw attention to yourself. Well, about a week later, Darby and Nixon and some moms go back to Chick-fil-A and the same thing happened all over again. Nixon went down the slide with poop in her diaper and got the slide covered in poop. So The Chick-fil-A staff shut it down again, kids leave, families leave. Now, my question here is, when those Chick-fil-A staff members have to go into a situation like that and clean all that up, are they still saying, it's my pleasure? (laughs) I... I doubt it, right? I I just don't think. Listen, I know the Chick-fil-A staff are godly people, okay? But I I just doubt that especially after the second time, they're, they're still thinking it's a pleasure. I really doubt it. I'm sure they're thinking it's a pain, not this is a pleasure. Well, when churches talk about money, I think most of us, if we're honest, are thinking, man, what a pain, And I'll see you guys in about five weeks when you're done with this series, right? I think that's what a lot of us are thinking. But Paul's gonna talk to us today about a church, some churches, some believers in this region of Macedonia that considered giving a pleasure. Not not a pain, but a pleasure. And I think when a lot of us have that kind of attitude towards giving, it's a pain. It's worth our time to examine some believers that looked at giving, that looked at radical generosity as a pleasure, not as a pain. What's going on there? Why do these believers see generosity as a pleasure, as a privilege even, when most of us just don't? A year ago, our church began a season called Project One that we find ourselves in the middle of our team is gonna to begin to pass out these guidebooks right now. And these guidebooks are gonna tell you more about where we were as a church with Project One, where we're at right now, and where we're headed. Some of the same information was in the video that we just watched. So I wanna ask you today, over the next week, to walk through these guidebooks so that you can kind of get a picture of where we've been, the season that we're entering as a church, and the vision that he's put before us. You saw in the video that a year ago, we cast this vision for Project 1. Project 1 said that there's one God, there's one name by which we are saved. That means there's one faith, one family, and one focus that's worthy of giving our one life for and we issued two challenges that you saw in the video. The first was that we would be all, all in. Not some give all or, or all give some, but that we would all be all in. And we prayed for 100% engagement across our church family. That was the first challenge, all, all in. The second challenge was that we would give our all, give my all. In First Chronicles 29 verse three, as you saw in the video, David said, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I'm giving all. Because my heart is stirred, because I'm all, all in, I'm going to give my all. That's, that's what happens when your heart is stirred for God. When you're devoted, as David said, to the Lord and to the people of God, the natural overflow, David said, was I'm going to give my all. And so in project one, we said it was time for a new core group of people Much like the core group that helped us launch this church five years ago, we said it was time for a new core group of people to launch us into the next season of our church, the season that we find ourselves in right now. And we said, it's going to take faith. It's going to take surrender. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take risk. That's what Project One was all about. It was all about living for and being a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, making an eternal impact. And now, again, we find ourselves a year in. And you guys that made commitments to project one have been faithful to those commitments. And as you saw in the video, God has used you guys to do so much. Well, I believe we are once again in a season where we need to go back to the heart behind project one, to look at the why behind the what, to look at the why, like the heart behind generosity. Because most of us, let's be honest, we're just not as godly as the Chick-fil-A staff, right? It's not exactly a privilege to talk about what we're talking about. And, and so because of that, and because our hearts get out of alignment, right? Like, like a car that gets out of alignment and kind of veers to one direction or the other, we tend to get out of alignment in the two directions that that, that the heart that our hearts lead to are self-sufficiency and self-centeredness. And so from time to time, we need the Holy Spirit to come and bring alignment and challenge us to recenter ourselves on the mission of Jesus. And so with 12 months left in project one, and as we consider what lies before us as a church, we're going to be going verse by verse through 2 Corinthians chapter eight and chapter nine. Our key verse for this whole series is 2 Corinthians eight, verse five, which says this, for their first action the churches in Macedonia, the believers in Macedonia, Paul says, their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as Paul said, God wanted them to do. That it was God's will for the believers in Macedonia, just like it's God's will for you and I to give ourselves first to the Lord and then to us. First to the Lord and then to us to us. So the series that we're going to be in over the next five weeks is called First. And the challenges in this series, as you saw in the video, and as you'll see on the commitment card that was stuffed inside these guidebooks, the challenges that we're going to ask you to prayerfully consider are number one, if you're new here, to consider making a Project One commitment for these last 12 months. Secondly, for some of you that made a commitment a year ago, it's gonna to be to finish strong. And then third, for those of us that made a commitment a year ago, some of us are gonna be challenged by God to increase that original commitment for these remaining 12 months. Our Commitment Sunday, I want you to mark in your calendar, is Sunday, November 12th. This is a Sunday where we will covenant together as a church to take these steps of faith together, to commit, if we're new, to finish strong, or maybe to increase. Sunday, November 12th will be Commitment Sunday. And so we're gonna ask you over these next five weeks to prayerfully consider these challenges. You're not making any commitment today, but over the next month to prayerfully consider these challenges so that on Sunday, November 12th, we can all covenant together for these last remaining 12 months of Project One. Listen, you have a god given desire to live for something bigger than you, to live for something bigger than the story of you, and that God-given desire is to live for the glory of God. If you want to get to the end of your life and know that you did more than just pay bills, occupy space, and consume resources, it's going to take living out these verses, living out 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 which is where we're headed over the next five weeks. So 2 Corinthians chapter eight, if you got your Bible, turn there with me. Uh, Whether you have your Bible or not, now's a great time to get out our app. It's called the City Church Lubbock and go to Message Notes. You can download our app in your app store on your phone. It's called the City Church Lubbock and go to Message Notes. All the verses and all the points are going to be there. Before we dive into 2 Corinthians eight verse one, let me give you some background some background on where Paul's been in 2 Corinthians chapter 1-7. through chapter 7. First of all, Paul has told us that God comforts us with the gospel, that he comforts us through the Holy Spirit so that we can comfort others. Paul has challenged the Corinthians to share in the sufferings of the gospel together with other followers of Jesus who are sharing in the sufferings of the gospel. Paul has challenged them to share in ministry together as ministers of the new covenant, Paul has said that the glory of the new covenant makes it worthy to suffer for, to sacrifice for. Paul has challenged the Corinthians that we are God's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal to the world through us. Paul has challenged the Corinthians to faithfully preach the gospel and the truth of God's word and to serve God regardless of the cost and regardless of the sacrifices. So that's where Paul has been in one through seven, which sets us up for 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse one. Now here's what you've also got to understand. There's an emergency. There's an emergency in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church is suffering right now because of famine, because there's a food shortage, and because these believers in the first century are being persecuted like every other Christian in the Roman Empire in the first century. And so because they are suffering, not only in poverty, but in persecution, Paul for 10 years has been raising money among the churches that he has started to give a gift the Jerusalem church, to help them, to to, to provide some relief. And so the Corinthian church has promised, they've pledged to be a part of this gift that Paul is raising for the Jerusalem believers. And so in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing them to encourage them to follow through on their commitments, to follow through on their promises. And he's going to use these churches, these believers in the region of Macedonia who responded to this emergency. He's gonna use their faith. He's gonna use their generosity to challenge the church at Corinth to follow through on their commitments. So that's where we find ourselves. 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse one, Paul says this. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, they've got trials, some translations say afflictions. They're being persecuted for their faith. And then Paul says, they're very poor. The Greek here is bottom of the barrel. This is the poorest of the poor. This is poverty. But Paul says, in spite of their troubles, in spite of their poverty, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity for I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but even far more. And they did it of their own free will. They want, this was was a willing gift. It wasn't something that was prodded out of them, that was forced out of them, that was manipulated out of them. No, they gave of their own free will. Verse four, they begged us. They begged us again. And again, for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. What is happening here, right? What, what is going on in the hearts of these Macedonian believers who are in poverty and under persecution and yet experiencing abundant joy and begging to give? Do do, do you see the the, the heart here, the the, the, the way they consider it a privilege to to, to give, but not just a privilege, they're they're begging for the chance. They're begging for the opportunity to share in this gift for the believers in Jerusalem. The churches in Macedonia, Paul says, considered it a privilege. The Greek word here for privilege is is the same word that's translated as grace. The Greek word for grace is gonna show up 10 times in 2 Corinthians eight and nine, 10 times. The word grace is going to appear. Grace is when you give something you aren't required to give. Grace is when you receive something that somebody did not owe you, that's called grace. The Macedonians are eager to participate. They're eager to give. They're eager to be gracious. To give is to be gracious. To give something you don't have to give is to be gracious. To receive something that you aren't owed is to receive grace. The problem, though, is they don't have extra cash, right? They don't have any disposable income. In fact, Paul says that they're very poor. They're experiencing persecution, right? And so Paul is actually reluctant to accept the Macedonians' gift because of their poverty, but they begged him to give. In fact, the Greek here is that they demanded the right to have a share in the gift. They're demanding a right to have a share, to to participate in the gift because they're saying these people are our people. They're our family. And and they're, they're claiming this common bond that they have in Christ as the reason that they would demand the ability to share in this gift, that Paul isn't going to deny them the opportunity to share in this gift because they're saying these people are our people. They're our people. We may be Greek, we may be Gentile, and they might be Jew, but there are people, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our family, and so we demand to be able to share in the gift that's being collected for the Jerusalem church. Where does this kind of attitude come from, right? To experience poverty and and, and trials, afflictions, but then to have a, a, a joy, an abundant, overflowing joy all at the same time? Clearly, there was something more important to the Macedonians than their own comfort, right? Or even their own troubles. There, there was something that we're gonna get to here in just a second, that there's something that they care about more than their own financial situation, than their own poverty, than their own comfort. You see, the overflow of grace is always generosity. Generosity. The overflow of grace is always generosity. When you've been given grace, you give grace. And the Macedonians are overwhelmed with this abundant joy that could only come from the grace that they've received by God through Jesus Christ. And the overflow of grace is always generosity. When you've been given grace, you you give grace. When you've received what you did not earn, what you did not work for, you want to give to people who have not earned or who have not even worked. for. They don't deserve, I didn't deserve the grace of God. And so now I want to give out the grace of God. People who, they may not deserve it, but because I didn't deserve it and God was gracious to me, now I want to be gracious to other people. The overflow of grace is, is generosity, And these words, giving and generosity and grace are so closely related that Paul's gonna use the same word interchangeably. Giving and grace. Grace produces radical generosity. Jesus would say in Matthew 10, verse eight, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received. You you did nothing to earn God's favor. You did nothing to earn the gospel. Freely you have received. So freely give, Jesus says. Let's keep going in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. Paul says, they did even more than we hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to to do. Joy in poverty, joy in the midst of affliction. How, how is this possible? Well, notice what's first in their heart. Notice what's primary in their heart. Is what's primary in their heart their own comfort, their financial situation, their own safety, their own security in light of the persecution they're enduring? Is that, is that what they're concerned about? Is that what's primary? Is that what's first in their hearts and in their minds? Is their own financial situation, their own comfort? No. Paul says, what's first in their hearts is the Lord and us, the Lord and us. Do you notice what's primary? And by default, then what's secondary in the hearts of these Macedonians? What, what's, what's primary? The Lord and us. What's secondary? Everything else, my situation, my financial situation, my problems, Right when when we have problems we blame god we we run from god we question god when the macedonians have problems they give generously do you see the difference here it's because of what's primary in their hearts paul says they gave themselves first to the lord and then to us, let's go back to First Chronicles 29, verse three. When David was collecting funds for the building of the temple, he said this, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I'm giving my all, my devotion. Do you hear that? Because of what's first in my heart. Now, here's what you've got to understand about the temple. The temple didn't just represent the vertical relationship between God and his people, although it certainly does. It doesn't stop there. The temple also represented their, their community of faith, the Jewish community of faith. So, so it had this vertical, right, illustration of, the, the, of God and his people and the relationship there, but there, there was also this horizontal illustration within the temple, embodied in the temple that represented our community of faith. And so when David says, uh, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, what he's saying is, is what's primary in my heart is the Lord my God and the people of God. And David said, because of what's primary in my heart, the Lord my God and the people of God, I'm giving my all. I give my all because of my devotion to the Lord and to the people of God. So secondly, here's what you've got to understand about grace. The overflow of grace is priority. The overflow of grace is priority. Paul says about the Macedonians giving themselves first to the Lord and then to us, he says, this is God's will. It's God's will for you to give yourself first to the Lord and then to us. This is God's will. The overflow of grace is priority. Jesus said it like this. If you will seek first the kingdom of God above all else, everything else will be added into you as well. In other words, if you will make what's primary, primary in your life, then God's gonna take care of all the secondary things, right? But, but the moment that you take what's secondary and you make it primary, you're always going to feel empty, But when you make what's primary, primary, like the Macedonians did, then even in the midst of trouble, poverty, affliction, persecution, you can experience abundant joy because you've made what's primary, primary. Grace always, always makes what's primary, primary, and what's secondary, secondary. When you make things that should be a priority, a priority, all the secondary things just tend to fall in place. Now, I I want you to see how practical Paul's gonna get with this priority, with this issue of priority. Look in 1 Corinthians 16, verse one. Paul is telling the Corinthians about how they should plan to be faithful to the commitments they've made to, to give to the Jerusalem church. And he's basically, he's gonna say like, hey, don't just you know, come up with a plan on the day that we arrive to collect. No, from now until that day, he's going to say, be ready, be ready for that day. And here's how he gets real practical. Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should set aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. In other words, Paul saying, listen, each week, give your first and best. First and best. And follow, Paul says, this procedure in order that you might make the Lord and his people a priority. In order that you might make what's primary, primary, Paul's gonna get super practical first day of each week. When you get when you get the money that you've earned, set aside a portion of it. In other words, don't wait until the last minute and then just give whatever's left over. That would be making what's primary secondary. No, Paul's going to say, make what's primary primary, and here's how practical we're going to get. On the very first day, when you get all your money, like first and best, set a portion aside. You see, grace makes primary things primary and secondary things secondary. Grace then takes all the secondary things in your life and submits them to what is primary. That's what grace will do. Verse six, Paul says, so we've urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. This ministry of giving, Paul says, has the Greek word, again, for grace. This ministry of giving, it is the ministry of grace. To excel in giving, Paul says, we want you, I want you to excel in this gracious act of giving. To excel in giving, therefore, is to excel in extending grace. To excel in giving is to excel in being gracious and being generous to the gospel and to others. So here's the last point about the overflow of grace, what grace will do in you. The overflow of grace is ministry. The overflow of grace is generosity. The overflow of grace is priority. But finally, the overflow of grace, what grace will always do in you is ministry. In verse four, when Paul talked about the Macedonians sharing, begging to share in this gift, the Greek word for share is koinonia. And this Greek word that is sometimes translated as fellowship, the fellowship of Believers indicates that the Macedonians see their involvement as participation in this larger entity within the community of faith. They recognize that they belong to a body, that they're not on their own. They didn't get where they are on their own. And so they recognize they belong to this fellowship. They belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And so they beg They demand even that they have a right to share in this gift as members of the koinonia, as members of this fellowship. In Acts chapter 2 and 4, it says that the early believers in the early church would sell their possessions and good and land and they would bring the funds to the apostles so it says they could distribute to anyone who was in need. And here's what it says about those early believers. It says in Acts 2 and in Acts 4 that no one considered that what they had as belonging to themselves. No one considered that what they had, their money, their goods, their possessions, they said no one considered that what they had was their own, it belonged to the Lord. It belonged to us, it belonged to the Lord, it belonged to us, that's what grace does. Grace will always overflow inside of you where you begin to realize everything I have belongs to the Lord and it belongs to us. No one considered that what they had belonged to themselves this koinonia, this Greek word koinonia that we get fellowship from in the New Testament. It means that which we hold in common or have a share in. That which we hold in common or have a share in. So here's what grace does. Grace produces a we, not me kind of attitude. Grace will always say, it's not about me. It's about We. Grace produces a we, not me kind of attitude. The overflow of grace is ministry to us. So here's the big idea today. The big idea is that grace receivers become grace receivers dispensers. That, that's what's happening here in these Macedonians. Why in the world are they begging to share in this gift when they've got their own problems, when, when they're in poverty, when they're being persecuted? Why? In the, what, what is it about these believers that, that that would say giving is a privilege? It's not a pain. It's a privilege. What is it about them that they would beg, that they would demand to be able to participate in this gift? Here it is right here. Grace receivers become grace dispensers. That's what grace does. When grace is overflowing inside of you because you have experienced the grace of God and received that which you did not earn and that which you did not work for. Grace receivers always become grace dispensers. Paul's gonna tell us a little bit more about where this heart and the Macedonians came from in Romans 15, verses 26 and 27. He's gonna say this. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. Verse 27. They were glad to do this. Read that again. Listen, I, I know some of us are here. This is a pain. Let's get real. Some of you are looking at me like, this is a pain. Like, I'll see you again in five weeks. They were glad. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them, to the believers in Jerusalem. Why? Why? Since the Gentiles, these are the believers in Macedonia, since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. You see, the, the mother church, the mother ship, if you will, in Jerusalem, where the church first started, had supported the missionary activities of its members to get the gospel to the nations, including to the unreached people groups in the region of Macedonia. And and so here's, here's what's happening. These believers in Macedonia are saying, we wouldn't know the gospel unless those believers in Jerusalem had been radically generous to the spread of the gospel, to the preaching of the gospel. We wouldn't know Jesus. We wouldn't know the grace of God unless those believers in Jerusalem gave generously so that we might know the grace of God. Do Do you see what's happening here? Grace receivers, those who've received a gift that they did not earn, that they did not work for, become grace dispensers. We're gonna give graciously because grace receivers become grace dispensers. Those believers in Jerusalem had the vision to give radically to the spread of the gospel. They saw another emergency. Paul's collecting a gift for an emergency in Jerusalem. It's the famine, right? The believers in Jerusalem saw another emergency. Unreached people groups. They said, it's an emergency. Emergency. People don't know Jesus. We've got an emergency on our hands. And so they gave graciously. so that people in Macedonia and people to the ends of the earth might hear the great news of the gospel. You see, what we dispense is always a reflection of what we've received. What we dispense is is always a reflection of what we receive. Now, Now, here's what's so amazing about God. God dispenses shovelfuls of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. In fact, in Romans chapter five, Paul says that grace rules not like grace is awesome yeah that, that that's a part of it no the word there is rules like a king so paul says we may sin but but grace abounds all the more you you, you in other words you can't out-sin the grace and mercy of god and so paul says grace rules like a king over the believer God dispenses shovel loads of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And here's the problem. The problem is in me when I celebrate the shovel and I sing songs about the shovel loads of grace that God has lavished upon me, but I dispense with a little tiny teaspoon. God shovels out loads of grace and mercy on us. And we celebrate the shovel. We sing songs. but they are gonna sing songs about the shovel here in just a second. But then what do we do in turn? Oh, you need some grace from me. Here you go. Here's a little teaspoon of grace. Your spouse needs grace from you. Oh, here you go. Here's a little bit of grace for you. Your church needs grace from you. Oh, here's a little bit of grace from you. Your your worship, oh, here's a little bit of grace. Your giving, oh, here's a little bit of grace. You see, there's a problem in me when I can celebrate the shovel, but then I dispense with a spoon. It's not saying something about them. It's saying something about me. When I can celebrate a shovel, but dispense with a spoon the churches in Macedonia recognized that God had been gracious to them in the gospel. They recognized that the Jerusalem believers have been gracious to them by giving to the spread of the gospel. And so the result was overflowing grace and overflowing grace always produces generosity, priority and ministry. Grace receivers become grace dispensers. Now, I realize that we all come from different places to a series and a challenge like this. Some of us come from a place of anxiety. Maybe you've been pressured to give in the past. Maybe you've been hurt by a church or a pastor or by Christians, or maybe you think that churches are just after your money for whatever reason or not. And so you come to this with a place or from a place of anxiety. Well, here's the great news about grace. Grace heals what's broken. And so if you're coming from a place of anxiety, you need to ask God to heal that wound, to heal that brokenness inside of you. And and grace does that. And, and, And here's why. Because if you let a past experience affect today's experience, you're gonna miss out. You're gonna miss out. Some of us are coming from a place of insufficiency. We think, oh, I don't really make a lot. I don't have any leftover money. I don't, what, what could I do? Here's the great news about grace grace supplies what's lacking. And so you might be in the position of the widow that Jesus celebrated, who gave very little, but percentage wise, it was a lot. And Jesus pointed her out and celebrated her story because she gave what she could. And the great news about grace is that grace always supplies what's lacking. Some of us may come from a place of sufficiency. Insufficiency is, man, I don't, what what can I do? I don't really make a lot of money. Sufficiency is, kind of the opposite. It's that, oh, I made my commitment 12 months ago or I I, I give regularly, I've, I've arrived. I've arrived. Listen, a sense of arrival is deadly for a Christian. And grace, while there's a first experience of grace, when you give your life to Jesus and you believe the gospel, grace is an over and over and over again kind of thing. And so for you, if you come to this, season to this series, kind of from a place of sufficiency, my prayer for you is that you'll have a fresh experience of grace because sufficiency and feelings of arrival are deadly. We all come from different places that would tempt us to say, this is painful and these next five weeks are gonna be a pain. And so maybe I'll just skip the next month. But here's what grace always does. Grace turns it's a pain into it's my pleasure. Grace always turns it's a pain into it's my pleasure. Just like those Macedonians believed. They considered it a privilege, a privilege to give. So much so they begged for the opportunity To do so, will you take out this commitment card that was in your guidebook again that you got when we first started? And if you'll open it up and kind of look through those commitments there, what I'm asking you to do over the next month is to pray through this card. Don't fill it out today, don't fill it out this week. Take the next month as we walk through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to pray about what God would lead you to do. Maybe you're new and it's going to be to make a commitment. Maybe you made a commitment 12 months ago. And God's going to tell you to finish strong. Or maybe you made a commitment 12 months ago and God's going to lead you to increase. Whatever it is, I pray that what you end up putting on that card represents a fresh work of grace. And then again, on Commitment Sunday, November 12th, we're going to covenant together to take these steps as a church. The Macedonian Christians responded to the emergency in Jerusalem with generosity. Generosity. And you might be wondering, well, what's the emergency? Like, what's the emergency here? Like, what's the emergency today? The emergency today is the same as it was in Paul's day. It's the same as it was in the first century. The emergency is gospel ministry and mercy ministry. Gospel ministry and mercy ministry. Francis Chan, in his book, Erasing Hell, where he challenges this idea from progressive Christians today that would try to erase the doctrine of hell. And he takes a whole book to say why the traditional understanding of hell is the correct understanding. But in his book, he said something that I found very challenging and disturbing. And so I want to challenge you and disturb you with it too. He said this. In our country, he's talking about American Christians. He said, we have become dangerously comfortable. Believers ooze with wealth and let their addictions to comfort and security numb the radical urgency of the gospel. In other words, Chan's saying, there's an emergency. You're just asleep to it. And our hope in this series is that God by his spirit wakes you up and pulls your head out of the sand of comfort and security and wakes you up to the emergency that is going on right now, that there are people in Lubbock, Texas, our country, and the world who don't know Jesus that need to hear the gospel. And there are people who are suffering and need help, even in our own church body. In fact, right now, as our churches continue to grow, every single week we get a request from someone in our church for help to not get evicted from that apartment or from that home, to get groceries that'll last them for the next week, or to keep their power from being turned off, or to get their water turned back on. Every single week, people from inside of our church and outside of our church are coming to us for help. We've got ministries that we support here in Lubbock and around the world who have emergencies. There is an emergency. Chances are you've just been asleep to it. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will wake us up and then begin to do in us what the Holy Spirit did in those Macedonian believers, where they give themselves first to the Lord and then to us and we respond to the emergencies with generosity. I pray that you and I, just like those Macedonian believers, will get uncomfortable, uncomfortable by giving ourselves first to the Lord and then to us. Would you pray with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed, just kind of a moment between you and the Lord try to remove all the distractions maybe of what was going on before you got here or what you need to get back to after this or maybe the person on your left or your right. When we talk about a fresh experience of grace, for some of you, you you need to have a first experience with grace where you understand that good people don't go to heaven. In fact, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter two, salvation's not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good good people don't go to heaven. Some of us are thinking that maybe because our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds that somehow God's gonna let us into heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. And because you've sinned and broken God's law, you can never be good enough to be right with God or to go to heaven when you die. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, the scripture says every single one of us. And so a first experience with the grace of God says, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. I could never earn it. I don't deserve it. But God, you are gracious and you've proven and shown your grace by sending Jesus to die for me while I was a sinner. He died in my place for my sin. And he rose again three days later, conquering my sin at the cross, conquering the grave with the resurrection. And the scripture says, if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he died for you and rose again, you can be saved. The very act of salvation is the gracious work of God. And so that first experience with grace this morning for some of you is abandoning all hope in your good works or in your religious routine, abandoning all hope that you could ever be good enough to be right with God and running to the grace and mercy of God found in Christ Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're ready to give your life to Jesus so that you can be forgiven of your sin and made right with God, Pull out that connect card in the seat back in front of you. Fill it out. Check the box. that says, I'm committing my life to Jesus today. And then after our service is over, take it to the welcome center. We've got a team there that wants to pray with you and celebrate that decision with you. But God, I pray that as your spirit is moving and working in this moment, that, that, that some will have a first encounter, a first experience with grace. And God, for the rest of us, we'll have a fresh experience, a fresh encounter with grace all over again. God, that moves us from within our hearts to give ourselves first to the Lord and then to us. God, would you overwhelm and overflow grace in this place that would produce generosity and priority in ministry? God, would you wake us up from our comfort and make us uncomfortable because of the emergency that's at hand right now. And God, would you move our church to respond to the emergencies with generosity. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing?